and welcome to episode two of the Two Versus Two podcast. I'm your host, Grant Roberts. Uh, I'm the lead content designer at the Amazing Society. Uh, also joining me is our co-host, Joe Caruso. Hi, Joe. Hi there. I, uh, I do not have a job in the industry, as is the point, and I figured I'd pick that up without uh, waiting for you to segue this time. Okay, well, good. We're learning. This is good. We're evolving as a podcast. It's true. Uh, and But the other two people who are joining us have not listened to either of the episodes, so this is going to be an entirely new experience for them, I think. I thought it was important not to listen to it. No. Sheer laziness <laughs> led me to that decision. <laughs> well, they're only two hours long. That's <laughs> down from three hours to two for the last one. So, yeah, we probably won't go that long this time, but let's uh, attach some names to those voices. Uh, two hours? Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> Nick will be leaving after 30 minutes. <laughs> Uh, so let's, uh, Nick, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Nick Davidson. I am the design director up at Amazing Society. I share an office with Grant. That's great fun for everyone involved. Uh, I come to the Amazing Society from Wizards of the Coast, part of that uh, turbine. I'm probably best known as the lead system designer on Lord of the Rings Online. Oh, That's my goodness, sweet. which I've played uh, extensively. Yeah? What did you think? <laughs> uh, I loved it. And uh, then... I went to do another MMO because my wife also did that. that that's pretty much what happens. How, how many months total did you play? Gosh, uh, I want to say a little over a year. A little over um, a year? We came, we came in just maybe three months before Moria <laughs> came out and then sure. played for some time after Moria. Well, we can talk a little bit about this, but I think it's been really interesting watching the trend downwards in average number of months of subscription. It used to be back in like the Ashrons Call One days, we could expect somebody to stick, to stick around for you know, 12, 14, 16 months, and now the average churn rate has people down around six. Or aren't so, there just more games? That no, that's that exactly happen? it. There's more competition. When Ashrons Call launched uh, 10 years ago, just had its 10-year anniversary, plugging AC like I should, uh, it, it was only the third game out there. So you could play EverQuest, you could play Ultima Online, or you could play Asheron's Call. And of course you didn't play Asheron's Call, but you could have. The point is you didn't have many choices. Well, before before we get too uh, far down the rabbit hole of Lord of the Rings Online, we should probably <laughs> introduce the other person who's actually sitting here, Mike. Yeah, I didn't play Asheron's Call either. But uh, I'll introduce myself. My name is Mike Lee. I test video games at Nintendo of America, but not... Well, for, I'm sorry to say, at Nintendo, but not for Nintendo. It's an important distinction to make. What is the... Okay, By so, Nintendo, but not of Nintendo. No, I mean... For uh, Nintendo, my, but not near Nintendo. My opinions do not represent those of the company. I don't, okay. I don't oh, that's important to... <laughs> see, we, I didn't add the disclaimer before the last episode, like I probably should have. And I'll... I'll, I'll everybody give me a little few si uh, seconds of silence here for a buffer. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers. That's pretty important to know. All right, so now we can go back to bonding over not playing Asheron's yes, Call. Exactly. Yes, exactly. What all four of us share, uh, a lot of us not having met today, is that few of us have played Asheron's Call. A quarter or fewer, I imagine. <laughs> I heard it was good from the people who played it at the time. I just had no interest in it. It was a little bit graphically behind, which definitely hurt it. Uh, it was in development for quite some time, so... I saw people playing it when I uh, used to work at Legend back in the, the late 18th century. Um, there was one guy who was really enjoying it a lot, and that's pretty much all the exposure I had with it. But So yeah, Asheron's call happened. Um, 
Nick used to work on Lord of the Rings Online. That also happens. It did. Um, it's still happening. A bit more timely, indeed. Did, indeed. Now, did they go to a to a second expansion? I don't even know. Uh, yes, they did a second expansion. Uh, I don't think it's out yet. I think it's oh, I sad that I don't know that off the top of my head. No, it is not out yet. Uh, but they are doing a se- second expansion. And did you only work on the vanilla-based game, or did you work on the expansion as well? I was there through the ship of the vanilla-based game. Uh, I've watched the last features that I've worked on uh, set sail prior to and in the first expansion, so anything that happens at this point is entirely a mystery to me. Well, given that that game actually did give me a fair amount of entertainment, and certainly did so for my wife... um, to sort of illustrate the point of the podcast, I'm very curious to think what you as a developer involved in its making thought of it. So, I, in order to tell the story of, of Lord of the Rings Online, you have to go back a little ways to, uh, to a little project called Asheron's Call 2. Uh, even fewer of you have probably played Asheron's <laughs> Call 2. Uh, Asheron's Call I wasn't unique. sure if it had actually been published or if you were, like, joking. <laughs> wow. Uh, so... Asheron's Call is interesting in that it outlived its sequel by many years. Asheron's Call 2 has since shut down, uh, and a lot of the Lord of the Rings Online team had a big chip on their shoulder from working on Asheron's Call 2. Uh, that project had a lot of problems, not all of which we, we felt we, we earned or deserved. So we, we went into that project really feeling like we had something to prove, and I think that that came across in... Lord of the Rings. Uh, I think that with, with that project, we had the time, we had the resources, we had the support we needed. We had a really good relationship with the Tolkien estate. Uh, they've got a reputation as, as tough to work with, but we had a great time with them. Uh, well, if anything, that showed because, I mean, we're, I'm a fanboy, and uh, the person who got me into the game isn't a much larger <laughs> fanboy than I. He's the sort of person who participates in forum arguments about whether or not the Balrog had wings and oh, stuff sure. like that. And, uh, or did he just, I, just have shadow that was like wings? That's yeah, the question. exactly. <laughs> oh gosh. I had no. Uh, seriously, no. people debate this for hours and hours on on my old forums. I yeah. <laughs> it's so nice to have someone who can relate to me about Balrog's wings. But <laughs> in any case, uh, I will say that one of the main reasons that my wife and I continued to play it and did enjoy it was because at many moments you find yourself going, oh, it's that thing, and and you guys did a good job of that. We valued authenticity to a degree that was a little bit frightening even to us. I walked into the office one day, and I I was maybe a little bit hungover. It was a little bit early. The lights were off because all game developers work in caves, and... I heard two people talking, but I couldn't make sense of like two thirds of the words they were saying. And I was a little confused by that until I realized uh, someone was having a phone conversation about Elvish, the language which he spoke. (laughs) (laughs) About Elvish in Elvish? Yes. Oh. (laughs) Uh, So I I had to do a lot of research into like the, the sedimentary mineralogy of an imaginary world to support uh, the mining in our crafting system. Sure. Uh, crazy stuff. Uh, it's it's really interesting because a lot of the story of Lord of the Rings Online takes place kind of between the pieces that Tolkien actually explicitly tells in the books. 
Right, and so. as fans, we appreciated that. We felt like, hey, when I'm doing something, it's as though I am just off camera in the books. I'm glad that came across. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yes. how many opportunities in this podcast am I really going to get to, as somebody who's played and extensively enjoyed a game, say to one of the developers of that game, hey, the thing you were trying to do, I really enjoyed. Well, thank you. Well, this is probably the first, but I'm hoping that it's not going to be the last. Well, yeah, I mean, like when I play Space Siege, clearly uh, I'll have something to thank you for. When you play Space Siege, you'll be the first person of the film. <laughs> to play Space Siege. Um, this is a, this is probably going to be a recurring feature on this progress on this podcast, kind of talking around Space Siege every episode. Like, oh, it's so funny that Space Siege is so terrible, and we're never actually going to get to why that's relevant, but maybe someday. So. We can talk about Lord of the Rings Online and why it was so awesome and, and how much you love Nick for, for making the game for a Pretty while. Pretty much all night, that's, actually. I, we, so, I that's the topic. That's a, yeah, I think Mike and I are going to take off, and uh, the two of you can talk about magic. And uh, Lord, No, actually, that was not a segue. We're not talking about magic. Really? Because I... Never mind. <laughs> that's what will get him to stay for two hours. So, Mike... Only you, two hours? <laughs> You'll have your own podcast at that point. It'll turn into the Nick and Joe pod. Oh, that would be weird because his yeah, wife that would be weird. His name's Nick. And yeah, my, my wife's name is Nicole, and we call her Nick around here because uh, we have several people in the uh, social circle named Nicole. Yeah, that's going to be weird. We can't do a podcast. I agree. Well, that could be a good shtick, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what that shtick would be, but it would be good. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, like uh, most topics, I think Lord of the Rings Online, you know, uh, we have somebody here who worked on it. He can probably talk about it for a long time if we allow that, and it would probably be interesting, but I don't know where you want to go with it, Grant. We certainly could. I, I was uh, I was mainly trying to figure out a way to, to bring our fourth person into the conversation. I was yeah, make a that happen. Breath away from playing that game, uh-huh. and I'm learning a lot just listening to you guys. Well, what were you, like, were you playing WoW at the time you just didn't want to switch? I'm or? pretty sure I was either playing WoW or quitting WoW. I was kind of like smoking. I quit yes. like a half a dozen times or so. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm off it right now. I'm, I'm playing Ion. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I really was just a hair's breadth away, and I convinced myself not to. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting thing about how we started playing is uh, I, my wife and I ran a WoW casual raiding guild, and you know, in WoW, casual raiding means three weeks or three days a week instead of six days a week. And, uh, you know, so we're putting 12 hours a week into raiding. We're putting, you know, a bunch of time into farming. We're writing organizational posts to our guild. And after we burned out and got out of WoW, Lord of the Rings was good for us because it was a more casual environment where people were not so competitive and the game was not theory crafted within an inch of its life. And that was good for us. So a little bit of a rebound relationship. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, scoring them off the rebound and scoring them just the same, right? <laughs> uh, things have taken a turn. Um, yeah, I, I played Lord of the Rings Online very... I think I, I never bought it. I never subscribed to it, obviously. But I played the first area a few times. I think I got up to level... I don't know, 8, between 8 and 10. And I really liked a lot of the things they did, but it was just too soon after Warcraft. And... I just couldn't do that. And it's the same, I feel like kind of the, now my window is closed for MMOs. We're getting to the point now where I just don't have the time to, to, to spend on it anymore until Final Fantasy fourteen comes out and then all bets are off. <laughs> well, and, you know, we say that, and I kind of agree, but of course the 
the ticker of my incredibly casual progress through Champions Online continues, and uh, I'm now like level 29. I think three weeks ago when we last talked, I was level 27. Well, that could just be a really steep curve for all I know. I don't know. Not remotely. That's like six hours of play over those three weeks. Mm. So... Yeah, this is good. This is like the MMO podcast. I swear, every every week we're going to talk about this stuff. So, well, I, you did have it on the agenda, so it's not completely out of bounds. It was at the bottom. Hello. <laughs> um, so, what are, what else have you been playing instead of that? That has caused you, or like, why have you slowed with that? Well, I always play a lot of Magic Online, as we know, um, but I also played a lot of NBA Two K Ten. Yes. which I mentioned in the last podcast before I bought it. Yeah. And uh, it is one of those games that wants to do something that I really want it to do. So despite the fact that it is quite imperfect, I'm really enjoying it because I don't get a lot of outlets to play a game that does the things that it is doing. We'll get into that in a minute. Are you drinking some kind of cocktail with ice cubes rattling around? What, what is that exactly? I have no idea. I am not. Okay. Well, we'll just pretend you are. I'll, I'll Photoshop you into drinking some kind of <laughs> cocktail with ice. Um, so, yeah, the feature... I, I, I don't know how deep we want to get into NBA because the two people that I brought onto this podcast, I, I imagine that they would have pretty much nothing to contribute to the NBA 2K10 discussion. Not that that's a pejorative, just that it doesn't seem like the kind of genres that you guys play, correct? I will just say that it's fun to treat it like an RPG in that mm. I make one character, I play that character from the <laughs> beginning of their career towards stardom, eventually one would assume, and uh, that's what I like about it. Is there a minor league for the NBA? There is. It's yes, called the D- it's called the Development League. Ah, uh-huh. gotcha. And so the feature that Joe is talking about, and it's something that I tried for a little bit as well, and it was really kind of <laughs> compelling, um, is the ability to take a, a new player, which, which games like Madden have done in the past already, but take a player straight from college, put him through the summer league, and like turn him into a real player, and then hopefully get signed by an NBA team. And you, unlike you know the typical gameplay of most sports games, you control that one guy for the entire thing. Hmm. And if you get put on the bench, if your playing time's over, then you you just watch the game at that point. You can't do anything. Sure. And so it, it 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 does help you identify with this guy a lot more, and it's a lot more satisfying when you get. 12 points and 4 rebounds, because that was you. That was you, with instead of points. Kobe Bryant. Have you ever played uh, MLB Power Pros? I'm a big fan of Power Pros. Yeah, high five. Wow. A high oh, five I about like a sports game. Also, I have not, guys. but I want to hear about it now. Yeah. From your wow. All right. <laughs> Power Pros. Not a lot of people know this. I'm going to go into lecture mode just to give you a little bit of history here. Power Pros uh, is second only to Final Fantasy in the number of SKUs that have been published in a, in a single series. Uh, there have only been two of them in the United States. This series is huge oh, so in Japan. Four, four now, I think. They had a couple. Of, uh, oh, they Wii, did, Wii they did uh, two Wii SKUs, and then I think they... There's one on the DS, too. Uh, one on the DS, maybe a second one coming to the DS. But as real players, we're only going to count two of them, because they're the ones with career modes in it. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, oh, dear. The thing that makes this game what it is, is the idea of career mode, which is, I shit you not... A baseball game combined with an RPG combined with a time management game combined with a Japanese dating sim. Let's yep. just let that simmer in your head for a little while. <laughs> you well, right I played a game called New Star Soccer, which is an independent game about, you know, international football and is kind of the same thing it sounds like. 
So apparently there's a huge market for these things that I just had no idea about. This this game is brilliant, and uh, you you have to love both baseball and RPGs to really get the most out of... <laughs> I'll throw it out there. I love baseball. That's my sport. I, I also love baseball, and I love RPGs. So when I found this thing... And yet I've yeah. never heard... I, I've... I don't like baseball. Right. I do like RPGs, and I've never heard of this, and that's surprising to me. Now, yeah, the weird thing about what I like is if you give me an opportunity to, from a role-playing game perspective, do anything, I'll pretty much give it a shot. If you were like, <laughs> this is a curling RPG, I'd probably try it for a while, and I, you know, I don't like baseball, but if it were good enough, if the simulation were compelling enough, I, I'd probably get into it. Maybe that's what Bioware should do next. You know, since Dragon Age is probably going to tank, it's not going to sell very well. They all they are a traditional Canadian developer. A curling RPG is not that far out of their wheelhouse. So, I'm saying they've already got the RPG and the dating game down. That's <laughs> true. They do. They are one of the few games, the commercially viable games, to feature sex. So that's good. Sex and curling, perhaps. Maybe there's something. Could there. you score any one of the second power pros? I couldn't date anyone till the final. What? No, it, it was a real I, pain in the second one. I it, don't believe you that there is a dating sim part of this game. You don't have to believe me for it to be true. <laughs> Look at yeah, So heart. when you need time management, you're, you're pretty much talking about, okay, uh, I play every two days, and uh, so, in this day I'm going to train, and I'm going to spend two hours with my girlfriend, and I'm going to, you know, spend an hour injecting myself with, with performance. <laughs> you're not drugs. far off. <laughs> Wow, you're really good at this game too. <laughs> no, no, really. Like the the game takes part in in weeks. The second one, right? Mm -hmm. Weeks, and and during every week, and you choose to do something, which means you choose to ignore several other things. And you can go date people, work out, try to impress the scouts, or or you know just just dick around. And the way that they set it up, even dicking around is is sometimes better than working out. You could train in your stats and throw pitches, do push ups, whatever it is that baseball players do. Like they eat hot dogs, right? <laughs> Yeah, hot dogs are good. Hot dogs, hot dogs are great. and push-ups, pretty much, I think, is the trick. Yeah, but I think if you, uh, if you train to become a ninja, and yes. you, like, nothing happens for the majority of, the, of this route. But You'll get you a couple minor skill boosts, but what, if you actually complete your ninja training... Right, then you become an awesome ninja baseball player, yeah. and I'm sure if you date someone until that, that particular arc ends... Right. Uh, there are some special skills that you can only get from dating various girls. So your time is never it. wasted. It's just no. time... See, what, what's scary to me is that this sounds eerily close to Persona 4, which was my favorite RPG of the year, and yet you replace Whoa. baseball with, you know, going into a TV and fighting demons, and that's pretty much the same game at that point. Well, did you play Persona 3? Yeah, I did. And you, I, you, you say four, 4 is better? Much better, yes. Oh, I mean, 3 had the concept of saving the world, 4 had that detective thing. Yes. All you need to do was replace that core concept with... With baseball. baseball, yes, or curling, or whatever it is. <laughs> so, what I think is interesting about this conversation is that everybody is responding with incredible enthusiasm to the idea of like a dating sim combined with a baseball sim, and I wonder how completely weird that is. Like, it's very do we completely happen, weird. Do we happen to just have Wait. a very niche perspective in the room? Yes. Well, yeah. I, I can't tell how many of us. Are, <laughs> that's that's very true. I can't tell how many of us are actually appreciating it ironically or not because it sounds like Believe you it. guys really love it. I'm I all in. I, I am not appreciating it uh, ironically. This is legitimate appreciation. Oh, yeah, I mean, before, if in the NBA right? case, if I could date Chloe Kardashian, I'd totally do it. <laughs> 
Do you play uh, Dojin work? Uh, you know, uh, say Type Moon games or Toho games? No, I don't. Oh. See, this is the same reaction I had when I originally got an email back from you say, uh, expressing your interest in the podcast. That was one of the the phrases that I just did not understand. Well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't actually know what you said, I'll be honest. Right, and my own uh, mastery of the subject is, is somewhat questionable, but I'll, I'll try to give a lecture here. Mm. So, in The Land of the Rising Sun, there is a huge movement, I don't think, you know, it's, it's, uh, they call it Dojin. These are fan works. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, boy. Yeah, these, these are no ISBN, <laughs> no publisher. Do you remember those pictures I found of Street Fighter Girls for you? We're not going to talk about that right oh, now. Well, the entomology of it, Dojin is often mistaken... In, in America for meaning porn. And for the most part, you know, it's right. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's just fan art, like, in a larger sense. Well, right? I, I was, oh, Dojin, yeah, right. But uh, the Dojin concept is just fan work in general and has spawned several fan games. And, of course, in Japan, they have conventions for this, the largest convention for something or other in the world. It's Comic Hit. They hold it twice a year on some artificial island in Tokyo Bay. Where they built this huge convention center pretty much just for that. An artificial island. That's what I hear. I, I've never been there. What is it made of? Uh, dirt they shovel off the uh, the rest of the island. Oh, so it's just a man-made island. It's yeah. not like an island made of... Evil. Like, shredded fanfics. <laughs> <laughs> it pretty much... <laughs> it could be made of shredded fanfics. I, I'm really into Dojin stuff. As when I discovered it, it's very niche over here, and it's very Japanese. Mm -hmm. They love just making fan works of stuff, mm -hmm. and they have some talented people who... And even professionals who will throw down their, their professional rights and take, often take on, a, on a, like a pseudonym and produce these not-for-profit. They sell them off of a folding table at a convention for cost. They're self-printed and they never print them again. But like, what form does this take? Is this like pen and paper stuff? Is this I, I brought this up because a lot of them are dating games. Okay, so they're they're <laughs> they're played on the PC. Uh, yeah, a lot of them yeah. are just made on off freeware engines on the PC. A lot of them are pornographic. Mm -hmm. And most of them are downright awful. Let's get that <laughs> covered straight up. But yeah, well, to be fair, what got me into it is a lot of them have been really good, mm -hmm. and the people that made them subsequently incorporated and become professionals and gone to make dozens of games, including fighting games, mm -hmm. based on you know if you if you pick a fighting game like Melty Blood, where there's one male protagonist in the middle and he's got a knife and some glasses, and there are two dozen female protagonists of varying bust sizes and hair colors and shapes. And that seems to be the only difference between them. that. It was based on a porn game. Rest assured, it's the harem syndrome. Melty blood. Melty blood. Yeah, my immediate <laughs> reaction to this to this conversation is just to be interested in having this person send me like thirty links of shit I have never seen in my life. Melty blood, believe it or not, has, is a, is a game that has gone professional from being a PC freeware fighting game. Uh -huh. There are uh, two arcade, three arcade releases. Uh, half a dozen uh, PS2 games and a thriving local tournament scene, believe it or not. He's here in Seattle, Seattle, in the Seattle area. <laughs> I'm learning all kinds of things here. Uh, so, And it's Melty Blood. It's called Melty Blood. blood. That is Melty. Melty. <laughs> it is written in English by Japanese people. Take it with a grain of salt. Um, sure. <laughs> it's a current version is Actress Again, which after Act I've Adenza, heard of that. Act. Why have I heard of that? I'll analyze that myself later. I'm sure you know some nerdy people. I just <laughs> hello. <laughs> well, like I said, like this is, is a game that was it's a fan made fighting game made by a company that did not make the original game, which was a choose your own adventure pornographic dating game, and they're kind of going full circle and trying to add dating el game elements back into it. 
So, but when you say fan made, I wonder, like, I, I wonder how many of these people are like developer. Like you said, they had dropped out of uh, like do, uh, adopting pseudonyms to make this kind of stuff. Uh, well, a lot of them are professional artists. Some of them uh, have such iconic art styles that it's difficult for them to hide their names. And, and you know, like guys like Tony Taka, where that's just who they are. Right. And uh, but a lot of them. Uh, for example, Zoom, the guy who makes the Toho series by himself, he does. He's the programmer, lead artist, and the musician, and all this. Okay. He actually holds a day job as a, a programmer for Taito. Okay, that makes right. sense. So yeah. these guys basically work in their garage on their free time, and they gather at these huge conventions right. two or three times a year, and they just sell stuff that they worked on because they love it. Look, because hmm. when you say fan made, the connotation for me is. Uh, 18-year-old who's a big fan of this stuff kind of making this stuff himself, but it sounds like fan in the in the, in the sense you're describing is just there are fans of all ages and all professional It's hard to put an English word to it, but uh, re rest assured, the majority of it is fan work of existing IPs, professional IPs. It's going to be pornographic and poorly drawn. And I mean, I think that in Japan there is a greater embracer of the idea of fan-created content uh, oh, and that more serious people sit down and try to realize projects about it, whereas whereas I think it's a little rarer here. Well, I feel like part of that may be due to the... It sounds like what you're describing, there are freeware available <laughs> engines for making stuff, and a lot of these games are kind of piggybacking off the same framework. While true, they're also uh, well, the more interesting ones. <laughs> are the ones that, that do code their own... Break, yeah, of course. Right. right. But I feel but like these are These are IPs that exist, for the most part. These are the works that target existing IPs. I don't think you could get away with any of that in the U.S. No, definitely. There's oh, got to be a sense of permissiveness that yeah. is cultural more than just, you know, differences well, in the legal system. Well, if you're not making money off of it, I don't know how much they bother to go after you. I mean, there's certainly a lot of, like, horrible... Harry Potter things. <laughs> yeah, like out Star there. Wars Oblivion mods and stuff like that. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, no, I'm talking about people well, who, you know, <laughs> write fan fiction about, like, Harry Potter and, and Malfoy, like, dating. Yeah, I, but, but I mean, that's just, those just exist on a website somewhere. I mean, if we're talking about it, I'm just trying to figure out if there's an equivalent seen over here, and it doesn't seem like there really is anymore since Well, the I mean, wouldn't people... that be Counter-Strike and things like that? Yeah, I'd but say the mod that community. was a long time ago, and I don't know how active the mod community is these days I now that we've gotten to the... That. But now that we've gotten to the point where the asset... The requirements for creating assets for the games so that they look like they match up with the rest of the games, they take a long time and a lot of talent to do it. I feel like that's one of the reasons why the mod scene has kind of dried up. Wait, so you think the, the Half-Life 1 was like a golden age for modding? For, yeah, for because back content? then it was easier to to create models and create weapons and stuff for it now, but if you try to make something for Half-Life 2 or Crisis, it's like, if you're not a professional great artist, then it's just going to look weird. And I, I do agree with that. I did right. some modding back in the Freedom Force. Uh, I'm a big comic book nerd, and I did some modding for, for Freedom Force uh, and, you know, created some custom characters which I then imported into that game. And you, you, there was something of a barrier to entry. You needed to have some idea of how to use, you know, 3D Studio Max and some idea of how to skin things. But the overall quality of the images was so low that you could get away with pretty, pretty small amounts of artistic skill. Right. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, 
I haven't gone looking for it lately, but I, I just get the sense that short of making maps for existing um, shooters and things like that, there's just not nearly as active a mod scene to the degree that there was back when you had things like Counter-Strike uh, being made. Um, and when you see the projects that actually make it, they're usually... It feels like they're they're either stuff that you can make and... <laughs> Hi, Kitty. There's stuff that you can make and upload to, to games like Little Big Planet or the kind of things where the game has built-in support for it inside the game. Or it's something that's a, just an enormous project like, you know, Ultima Five Lazarus for Dungeon Siege or um, other things like that that have come out recently. It doesn't seem like there's the middle ground of just this this vast network of uh, of underappreciated halfway mods. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Has Ooh, that stuff moved to the games. new no. indie PC game movement? Because I certainly do see a lot of that stuff. A lot of what stuff? I'm sorry. A lot of indie PC game development. Um, yeah, you know, it's true. As, as you know, Action Script and Flash become easier to develop sure. for. Then yeah, you then maybe that's where a lot of that stuff is coming from. But and even were, things like Mountain Blade, which was a husband wife, uh, I think Croatian development team that I love that game, and it was pretty pretty damn cool. Or Dwarf Fortress, for instance. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to yeah. ask about that actually. Yeah, <laughs> so. Um, Joe confided in me that he had never uh, heard of Dwarf Fortress. I had not until recently as well. Mike, from the noises you're making, it sounds... I heard of it, but I don't play. Okay. So we have one out of four people who have played Dwarf Fortress. So, Nick, why don't you tell us about Dwarf Fortress? Uh, Dwarf Fortress is... Wow, how best to put this? It is a ASCII-based, real-time dwarven civilization simulator. Souls. So the minute you say ASCII-based, I'm oh, yes. thinking of Angband or whatever it was, it, it or is, yeah, those old things. Yep, it is often uh, it is often put in the category of roguelikes. Uh, it has a roguelike mode. Uh, the The scope of this game is boggling. Uh, the fact that this is just sort of the insane project of one person is amazing to me. Um, but again, we're we're in a world where if you don't have the specialized artistic skills you need a team. And he doesn't have a team. He just has years and years and years to polish this insanely deep, detailed dwarven civilization simulator. Um, yes. And it's, now, it, is this a multiplayer game? or It is not a multiplayer game. It's a single-player game. Uh, it is famous for saying that it has no win condition. It just has a series of increasingly hilarious lose conditions. Uh... <laughs> If you can keep your dwarves from starving, uh, drowning, getting eaten by elephants, or going insane and murdering each other, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> so when I when I first saw him playing this, and I had never seen anybody actually playing Dwarf Fortress in person, um, and Joe, I don't remember if you had this experience growing up or not, but when I first started to learn basic and pascal on those early programming languages i would just do things like write a shopping convenience store program in basic where it's like i have this amount of money and i can buy these things from the store and now i have less money and they're in my inventory and wouldn't it be yeah, cool if somebody no, else could when, come visit when i was the in middle school i wrote an application for scheduling strippers as part of a school project Good, good. Like, if I needed to manage a stable of strippers, I was ready with a program for it. Of course you were. Um, 
pretty handy. But yeah, this seems like that times a million. I mean, the, the amount of things that that this guy has by himself, by all accounts, yes. added to this game is truly staggering. Just the number of things that can happen, the number of things that he's thought about, it, it's 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 mind-boggling. I mean, I've I've recent things I've done. Uh, I have had to tunnel into magma pipes, uh, flooding chambers, so that in a in a Z level above the flooded magma chamber, I can start magma forges, so I don't need to keep burning charcoal. Charcoal, which you burn down from wood, which you have to harvest from outside. And listen, dwarves don't want to go outside. Outside is bright and terrible. It's where the fruity elves live. It's, it's awful. Uh, the See, I kind of gather that there are a hundred little experiences like this where somebody has poured their life into some yes. project and like has gathered enough of a cult following to keep doing it somehow or another. Um, one of the things that strikes me right off the bat is a, is a web-based MMO that a bunch of my friends play called Kingdom of Loathing. Which, oh, yes. Which is really just some guy, you know, right, drawing stick figure art and making stupid <laughs> puns in his web-based MMO, and then donations got to the point where it has a staff of programmers now, as far as I know. And but what's funny is that when you look at something like Kingdom of Loathing, which has always seemed very like it, like the guys who were making it weren't really taking it that seriously. They were just kind of doing it for fun, and they kind of happened into this this large following. And you compare that with the saga of the guy, la I think it was last year, I don't remember what his name was, that had been creating his dream project for years. Um, like this this fully featured RPG, which is like a, a, a similar kind of vibe to something like Dwarf Fortress, where this guy had been you know, working on it nonstop for years and was trying to, to get Nintendo to publish it. And Nintendo wouldn't give him a dev kit, so he like barricaded himself in his room and like wouldn't come out, like went on a hunger strike. Do you not? Do you guys not remember? I this? have no idea what you're talking about. Joe, but do you it sounds awesome. <laughs> I I've never heard of that. Oh, son of a bitch! All right, well, I'll put a link to it once I track this guy down. But he literally was like making a GBA era DS era RPG, like old school, um, top down. Chrono Trigger slash Secret of right. Evermore looking thing. Some dude won't move out of your way as standing in front of a house. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, and you hold against him for a second, and then you face through him. But he had been working on this for literally years, self-funded, such as it was, and finally got to the point where he was having a very public fight with Nintendo, who would not grant him a development kit, because probably because he was, you know, a little crazy. And <laughs> literally, I think, went on a hunger strike in his apartment, and then kind of pseudo-playfully faked a suicide to get more attention. It's like... I'm it, sorry, it what? Dark. It, How it do you see, playfully I, I fake a suicide? <laughs> well, it was I a don't feel game. like that's what we were talking about. I feel like that's something of a weird departure to crazy people who want to be developers. No, but but my we point, can talk about that, too. My point is that this guy sounds like he, he had... He originally had the same goal as the Dwarf Fortress guy. That You know what? I'm going to make my life's dream. But instead of you know just diligently doing it and and trying to to make it text based where it can it can run on anything it could probably run on a graphing calculator, well maybe not. I don't want to sell it short. It, it is actually surprisingly uh, processor intensive because of all of the goddamn simulation it's doing. It's amazing. 
Yeah, anybody well, who's played a lot of text-based sports management games know that those things can drive your computer to death, even though there are no graphics. Yeah, I yep. mean, Joe and I used to participate in a electronic simulated wrestling federation. Um, nice. <laughs> so, and at one point, I was writing matches for it. So, we have experience with this kind of thing. And let me tell you, that was a lot of fun. You wouldn't think that writing wrestling matches would be fun, but it was it was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, Dwarf Fortress. Uh, the thing that I have written down in the agenda next to Dwarf Fortress is, can one of these super hardcore games ever be commercially viable? And Nick, I thought, had a really interesting answer to that when I asked him that the other day. I, I said no. <laughs> <laughs> Basically not ever. And, and I think that's okay. I think it, it kind of spoils the enjoyment for, for people like me. I'm glad... I, I'm I'm an elitist bastard. I won't hide it. I'm glad that not everyone has heard of Dwarf Fortress. I'm glad that not everyone would enjoy Dwarf Fortress. It is my own little private joy. <laughs> Dwarf Fortress has an interface so impenetrable that I was unable to play it until I actually had somebody who had played it already <laughs> sit down and teach me the game. Even though there are wikis and manuals, I actually right. needed it to be passed on, like information between masons. It was... <laughs> well, that, that's more like a holistic way of playing a game. It's, it's part of the experience. Right. Outside of just the game itself is the way that you approach it. Think about it. And now, when when my friend Jill talks about, you know, dropping drawbridges on, on hordes of elephants, I appreciate that in a way that very few others in the world will. Well, and I think that niche communities are like that in general. I mean, as somebody who's from a super hardcore nerdy community, or, or ten of them, you know, I can certainly say that People have real pride in their, you know, fandoms, and, you know, I, I just don't know enough about the business of video games to know exactly what commercially viable means, and it seems like there's a, a huge range of, of what that can mean, because you have these just monstrous Blizzard games that clearly make ridiculous amounts of money, and then you have something like Mountain Blade out there, which now has, you know, a multiplayer sequel coming out and was featured D3. So, you know, clearly that wasn't a game that was shown at E3 when it was originally being developed. And yet, they are making enough money to do something with it, so I don't really know what commercially viable means. Well, there's a lot of things in between that, too, like everybody making an iPhone app and selling it for $2. Those are debatably games for the most part, but they're still... You know, somebody went through the trouble of making it, and they're making money on the iPhone. And, like, everybody that uploads their own stuff to Congregate, whether they're charging money for I don't know if you can pay for things on Congregate or not. It's like a Flash game aggregator site. And so these people are making money doing what they're doing. Will they ever be as successful um, as a game with a publisher? I don't know. Well, I, one of the things that's really become sort of a problem for the indie developer is that these... What, what I've kind of called resume games, games that people maybe in college or just out of put together to showcase their their talents. They put it together for free and, you know, treat it as a serious work. And it is hard for an indie developer to charge for something that is basically, honestly, at about the same quality level as these games that a lot of kids, now that there are... God, did I just say Kids? <laughs> Old man. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of these young game developers. 
the, the part of the problem with the, with Skype is that Joe can't hear when he's talking. So oh, fair enough. So that's that's what happened there. But right. one of you, please continue. I will continue. Yeah. Okay, I, I am that bold. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's very difficult for like a, a two person project to be so much better than a sort of a, a portfolio project that uh, you see from someone coming out of Full Sail or CMU. Uh, that they can charge 15 bucks for it as a downloadable game, or even 9 bucks for a downloadable game. So there's become kind of this race to the bottom that's been facilitated by, by distribution like the iPhone, like Congregate. Uh, so it's hard to f- exist in sort of that fringe, whereas I think there was a market for that for a period of time. Well, I feel it's the barrier to entry to game development a lot of times, especially nowadays, is number of titles shipped, which is I think totally arbitrary to ability. <laughs> and a lot of them are looking for shipping a title and trying to make like a buck off of it and then putting it on the resume as a professional work. Right. Well, I think we as as people who are in positions of power to the point where we can make decisions on whether we hire people or not, um, we are usually able to be able to tell the difference between the two, you know, whether this is actually something that 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 shows the ability to be able to to be a professional developer, as opposed to this is something you just kind of tossed off and you don't necessarily you haven't necessarily learned the lessons from developing something. And I just right. did air quotes, which don't read right, on right. the podcast. Um, yeah, so I'm sure that this problem, though, yeah. I mean, it's not going to go away because it exists in every industry. I mean, uh, it, whether it's an industry that requires you to have a degree or a security clearance or uh, a certification uh, such as my industry, um, you're always going to have people who value lines on their resume more than learning how to execute their profession. And there's always going to be an aspect of, of resource management that is dedicated to trying to hire the right people from that confusing pool of applicants. Sure. I think one of the things that really separates out that group into people that I will hire and people that I won't is the willingness to truly finish something, to truly say, you know what, I'm done with this. This is to a point where I'm willing to call it done, because that's something that even among professional game developers, we're not always all that good at. <laughs> well, wouldn't you say the most successful indie projects, though, are the ones that you know, uh, get out there and some people start playing it and some buzz is created. And then because of that buzz, that person ends up being, you know, the KOL guy or the Dwarven Fortress guy. And then it is very much in their interest to never let that end. Well, it depends on what you mean by success in that case, because those guys, I mean, there's a there's a bar that they're never going to to, to go above. But when you get somebody like Jonathan Blow, who parlays his experience with doing this independent project and starts self-financing and makes Braid and gets that put on PC and XBLA and stuff, I, I mean, depending on your definition of success, he's massively more successful than the Kingdom of Loathing guy will ever be, even if they are making a similar profit off this stuff. And I don't know who's making what profit off of it. Right. If your goal is to become an entrepreneur and have a, a one to three person dev studio and, and make ends meet because people are, are, you know, donating five bucks via PayPal, that's, that's a goal. You, that might be your goal and that could be your, your criteria for success. 
if your criteria for success is getting a job at a major game company and working in the games industry, I think your goal needs to be a little bit different. Yeah. What do you think about the, say, the Penny Arcade guys who drove up their own self-popularity and had this massive, I, I can't want to say it, like, like an overflow of interest and then turned into something completely arbitrary into packs into their own games and just started branching out. They've got to be the exception that proves the rule. They're such an incredible zeitgeist. I don't think that anybody can look at Penny Arcade and say, I'm going to do it that way. <laughs> well, yeah, they're, I mean, with a, as, as is the case with a lot of these situations, I mean, they were kind of a combination of being in the right place at the right time and being the first to really do something correctly. Um, and, you know, Joe, a, a similar example of this that I don't think these these guys will necessarily recognize is, is Bill Simmons, who, you know, was the first guy to really parlay this internet sports column into something big, and he was, you know, right place, right time. I feel like it, it was the same way with Penny Arcade. You know, they could have very easily along the way screwed everything up, like when they sold the rights to their comic to a magazine at some point. I think they did that until they brought their business guy, Robert, on. Uh, they were kind of flying by the seat of their pants, and he helped turn them into this. So... It's, but credit to those guys for realizing they needed a business guy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's oh, they, kind of the critical really point. Did a great job. And it might have been driven by, holy shit, we just sold away our livelihood. What do we do now? And the business guy says, here's what you do, gentlemen. Mm -hmm. um, but, Thanks, yeah. business guy. <laughs> Bye. Um, so, yeah, they're, and it, I, I found it interesting. I, I saw interviews with the Penny Arcade guys from PAX, even though I wasn't able to attend this year. <laughs> And somebody asked them, hey, you guys are finally making games. Is it everything that you wanted it to be? And Gabe loves it, and Tycho really doesn't love it. Yeah, I heard them mention on, I, I don't know, a podcast or something, they basically said, doing this is too hard, and we probably shouldn't have done it, but it was a lot of fun anyway, and... You know, I guess we have to finish. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And and I don't know what Hothead was doing before Penny Arcade kind of merged or didn't merge with them, but like kind of brought them on board to help with this game. But now they're an honest to goodness developer and they're doing good stuff. So everybody wins. Um, I haven't really played the Penny Arcade games that much, so I can't say if they're worth a damn or not. But I enjoy. Yeah, them. I I think that they're just a bizarre case because. I mean, at this point, if they point at a website, it will probably go down. Yeah. I mean, they they have sure. such a pervasive yeah. influence on the people that read that strip that I guess they, they don't really, they aren't confined to, to what I'm thinking of when I say, you know, how do you get to be a successful game developer? There's something else entirely. They also occupy a really unique place in a in the game developer's world because they will only accept advertising from games they like. Yeah. Like, they, they turn away advertising, and it's it's not cheap. So the fact that they're, they're turning it away and saying, you know, there's a quality bar that your game needs to cross before we are willing to take your money is, I don't know, it, it's an unprecedented ability to show integrity and thus enhance... The, the the value of your opinion. 
Yeah, I think it's kind of similar to what we were talking about in the last podcast where Blizzard has this ability to shit-can projects that they don't like and has the ability to spend, you know, 37 years developing a game because they've, they're in the catbird seat in the same way that, that Penny Arcade kind of is. Yeah, it's true. And getting to that point is... <laughs> I mean, it's obviously a combination of luck and, and many other factors and, and the fact that there's really only one Penny Arcade and there's really only one Blizzard I think is a testament to that um, there, so. there was a keynote that one of the Blizzard guys gave at the last GDC uh, in which he basically took to task the industry it's, it's very common to, to hear game developers say well we'll do it the Blizzard way which is take as long as it takes and spend as much money as it takes to make the game great mm -hmm. people will actually say that with a straight face and what Blizzard's keynote was mostly consisted of was them going through their org chart and making it abundantly clear just how many people they're talking about. And that when they say, do it the Blizzard way, there's nobody who can do it the Blizzard way. There's just no way you will be able to bring that many people to bear for that long on any project. So find a different way. <laughs> <laughs> and that's... I mean, I don't think you can realistically say, I'm going to be the next Penny Arcade or I'm going to be the next Blizzard and have any sort of a plan that makes sense. You have to start with making that first shitty strip that Penny Arcade made that if you go back and look at it, you're like, ugh. Well, I don't even, I mean, I don't know that you can, that Penny Arcade is, is replicatable at this point. And I don't think World of Warcraft, honestly, is replicatable at this point in, in the near future. Because... If there are web comics out there that, while not as popular as Penny Arcade, are as well made, probably, and yet I don't think they enjoy the same kind of success that Penny Arcade does, for, independent of financial success, is the kind of crossover appeal that Penny Arcade has, and so I don't I don't know how you would do that from now, and and, and I kind of feel the same way about about companies that are trying to, to compete in the MMO space with Blizzard, especially when they try to make fantasy MMOs, um, that the order chart that you just talked about with that combination of, we've done this before, we have an enormous team, and we're not afraid to, uh, to, kill, a, to kill something if it's not working, is just not really, in this climate, something you can duplicate anymore. Do we need more of it? Do we need more stuff made by Blizzard? Do we need to, to get them to make all the titles in that space? Let, so, well, do you mean like, do we if if we could somehow make two or three other Blizzards, would that be good? Or like, or, what do you mean? Or um, just channel them through the, the Blizzard we already have? Or what about Penny Arcade? What if their opinion based on what well, their bar, bar of quality? What if we extended that? And you know, you can't buy any advertising unless Penny Arcade improves it. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, yeah. like, is this sure. is, is this a good thing that now that they're here and they're they're working the way that they do, is that the best way to do it? Well, I mean, a lot of cheaper <laughs> games out there are really fun. I mean, it's like you don't have to only watch The Sopranos. Um, you can watch shows on Comedy Central and and think they're good and I can play Mount and Blade and really enjoy it and I don't know if you had four blizzards instead of you know the hundreds of developers that actually exist I mean would you get any representation of what niche communities want probably not no power pros would never would never be made <laughs> and that would be a tragedy it would be a trashy, but isn't yeah, that I mean, I love anyways? niche games, and I need them to enjoy gaming. So I need there to be people who are satisfied 
just making a little money off me and weirdos like me. Well, the the grand hope for weirdos like you is that some platforms have become very <laughs> democratized. The iPhone is a very democratized platform. It doesn't take a heck of a lot to get a game up on the iPhone. Uh, XBLA is a little less so. I, could, I think there was sort of a, a promise of that, but you can definitely make an XBLA title with a smaller team, a smaller studio. Uh, Steam is willing to, to distribute smaller, uh, smaller games. And that's, that's kind of the hope that you know, the big budget titles are never going away. Blizzard's never going away. EA's never going away. Madden's never going away. World of Warcraft, we're going to be playing it for 10 more years. Uh, but there will be a market for weirdos like you because the platform side of things has gotten so much better. And you'll be able to, you'll be able to flip through Congregate and find fun new Flash games that did not take a Blizzard to make. And in fact, Blizzard wouldn't waste their time making that game, but that won't diminish the enjoyment you get out of it. Yeah, yeah and I, I feel we're on like... the same page on that. I, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because that's you know my suspicion. I also thought that probably a large source of those kind of games is is foreign development, um, where development costs are much lower, and uh, you know people are looking to maybe make their way out of a of a less economically stable situation and so you see games that are developed in weird places like Croatia well I feel like in XBLA in particular I've been kind of disappointed with their I mean Xbox Live is a great service and it's kind of spurred other platforms into making the same kind of ease of use and you know uh this general quality level that XBLA has done, but I feel like they've really kind of dropped the ball with their whole community slash indie game support. That stuff has been almost impossible to find from the beginning. They don't really promote it at all, and it just seems like they've kind of, they had their their window to, to choose to, to support that kind of thing and encourage it. And uh, It's interesting. The, I don't think of the platforms even being a place where indie games go. I mean, I know Braid is the big success story, but I generally think of Xbox Live Arcade as being a an avenue for uh, well-established major publishers to do small projects, uh, often ones that serve a marketing function like uh, like Bionic Commando Rearmed. Sure. But I'm not even talking about the stuff like Braid and Bionic Commando Rearmed. I'm talking about, you may not even know of the existence of these, Joe, um, but there's also a separate thing that's actually called Community Games, and they recently changed the name to Indie Games, and that's you pay a yearly fee, and you can upload your game to to Microsoft, and they and it's there as something that people can actually buy. Yeah, I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, and see, that's part of the problem in that I mean, you don't want to shove it down people's throats because the qual there's not much filter to the quality there necessarily, but I I would be surprised if the vast majority of people out there even knew that it existed, hmm. and that's a shame. Is it like a cafe press for, for games? Kind of, hmm. yeah. I mean, I know people who are making games on it and have uploaded it, and you have you can play it on your Xbox, and, and it works, and it's great, but nobody knows about it. I didn't know it yeah. was live, and I'm a certified industry insider. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of feel like... I mean, we haven't talked about this much, but I do kind of feel like the PC is still the best platform to get turned on to weird games. Um, 
I think that Steam, like was mentioned before, is is good for that. But there are a couple decent websites where if you're interested in indie games, you can find reviews and you can find you can find out what's good. There is a filter that lets you go after stuff that you're interested in instead of just be overwhelmed by this catalog of crap. Yeah, and that's that's it's a good thing too because in this day and age, GameStop and retail stores have kind of said "fuck you" to the PC platform. You know, there's no in GameStop you can barely find one shelf for PC stuff. In Best Buy, it's it's kind of a similar thing, and so digital distribution is really kind of revitalize that platform into something that's still, you know, viable in this age of a console version of a game outselling a PC version by a factor of 10, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, we have recently, as in in the last six months, bought two very niche uh, indie games off of Steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dangerous High School Girls in Trouble and, uh, and The Path. So... Right. That is working for people like us who will bother to seek out titles like that. Well, I think your wife in particular is going to be upset that we've talked about indie games and she's not actually here. We're going to have to remedy that next time. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've never heard it. What was the first one called again? It's called Dangerous High School Girls in Trouble, and it is a quirky little charming game where you play a flapper high schooler from like the 1920s and your objective is to like get boyfriends and you know do bad things to other girls in the game and it's this sepia toned art style and the whole the whole game revolves around little mini games that you play with like cards and dice and stuff like that and uh, you know it's just one of these quirky little strange, charming role-playing games that's out there on PC. Well, I'm glad that uh, that that was found by you. I feel like Nick just came back into the middle of this conversation without really knowing what we were talking about. Oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Dangerous High School Girls in Trouble, aren't you? (laughs) Yes! Yeah, right you are. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm impressed, actually. I will tell you why I know about Dangerous High High School Girls in Trouble. Uh... It was submitted to the uh, to the IGF, the Independent Games Festival, uh, and a couple of years ago, Wizards of the Coast sponsored an award at the IGF, so I got to review all of the IGF entries, oh. and Dangerous High School Girls in Trouble was among them, <laughs> which I played and enjoyed. And so now I, I know to never question your knowledge of, of weird, quirky games again. Please don't. And that's clearly <laughs> why I... badly I mean, for I, you. <laughs> I brought you on this podcast to mix with the other hardcore guy for a reason, and now I was not disappointed. Um, and you know, these games are like ten bucks, and yeah. I hope that enough people are playing them that the person who came up with this, you know, quirky, charming game, is is getting to explore more seriously their ambitions to write games as a result of a lot of people playing ten bucks on Steam. But I really have no idea how large its audience would be. Yeah. Well, uh, this this was definitely one of those resume games that that I was talking about earlier. It was originally created to find a distributor, like distribute it as far as it possibly could, uh, so that somebody would pick it up, package it, and put it out there on a platform like Steam, where they could actually start making money from it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, I feel like we could we could debate the merits of. Uh, of indie games for quite a while. Clearly, it's 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 a great thing that they have this this availability and kind of cachet at, uh, 
on Steam and XBLA and Xbox community stuff. Um, and Trumpet agrees. Come here, kitty. Um, so we uh, we've talked a lot about stuff that uh, that is is niche and stuff that kind of only only appeals to uh, the hardcore market. Um, there have been a few games that have come out recently that commercially that have gotten a lot of attention that, that are kind of doing the same thing. Um, Kitty, you're going to need to be quiet now. The grown-ups are talking. <laughs> All right, come here. Um, one of these games, um, I don't know if anybody besides Nick has played it. Um, that's Demon Souls. Oh, God, Demon Souls. And Demon Souls, um, the other, the rest of you might be familiar with it almost for the amount of uh, buzz it's been getting for various reasons, as as you are with the game itself. Um, would you like to try to describe Demon Souls? So Demon Souls, at its, at its core, is not much different than any other sort of third-person action RPG, except that it is just brutally hard and and has these weird, quirky, griefing multiplayer features. Uh, so, again, imagine kind of a standard third-person over-your-shoulder RPG. Uh, your experience points and money are basically the same thing. And when you die, and you will die, uh, you drop them all. You drop a corpse. You have to do a corpse run to get your, your XP back. Your unspent XP is, is on the ground, and if you die on your way to getting it back, that first pile is gone forever. It, it's just boggling to me, and you can't just save whenever you like. Uh, it connects to an online service so that uh, a couple weird things happen. First of all, it's continually auto-saving, and second, uh, you get to see messages left behind by other players, and sometimes you'll be playing your ostensibly single-player game, and you'll see, like, a ghost image of another player running by. Uh, you can see the bloodstains on the ground for, from where other players playing the same level have died, and you can use them to view the last few seconds of their life, uh, which is sometimes useful as you say, hey, I wonder how this guy died and then you watch him take two steps forward and die horribly, and you think, I wonder what's going to happen when I take two steps forward. Uh, and then you die horribly, and you leave a bloodstain for somebody else to hopefully do better with than, than you did. So I don't know if, the, if, you know, I've seen people play it, and I've heard Nick talk about it, and I've heard other people talk about it. I don't know that I've heard a more, if I've heard of a more sadistic game I haven't well, gotten to the best part, Grant. Oh. The fact that I can bust into your game without permission and murder you. For your own benefit. For my own benefit, yes. You're encouraged to do so. I am encouraged to do so. Uh, I can... Like, if you're playing Uncharted 2... <laughs> I mean, imagine what that would be like. Somebody hops into your game and headshots you. And they gain a lot of things, and, and then they you gain. have to fight your way back through all the yes, soldiers to get your Yes, they gain corpse. and you lose. Yeah. That's what happens. Yeah, that's Demon's Soul. It's it's the most sadistic game I've ever, I think I've ever heard of. Oh, um, have you beaten it? Oh hell no! I oh. I never give up on games. <laughs> I gave up on Demon's Souls. Uh, I'll say I haven't beaten it personally, but uh, we had a community effort 
there was a group of us, and whenever we weren't doing something else, we would put some time into this Demon Souls character we all kind of communally played. And his level did exceed um, some hundred thirty or so. Yeah, and it was out of seven hundred for the record. <laughs> uh, there were there were a couple new games uh, in there along the way, and there are as you go, it doesn't get any easier. No. There are exceptionally cruel features that have not been discussed, and and there might be some spoilers involved. So okay, be simple. But go ahead, go ahead. It is possible for a particular enemy or many enemies in the game to steal your soul. It's a throw. It's a spell. It when you're hit by it. You're lifted up and you lose one level of experience. So all of the money that you have spent and is no longer in your pocket is put back into your pocket and taken away from you, and your stats are lowered by one in the order of the last which you uh, last leveled them. And uh, not only does this happen to you, and it doesn't kill you, so he can do it constantly to you. And if you fail and restart, come and grab your body, he can keep doing it to you. Are uh, you shitting me? <laughs> no, not only is this not freakishly common, the player gains this ability, and you can use it on other players when oh, they're looking. Oh, my. I can go into your game and level drain you? <laughs> yeah, repeatedly. You're a real-life vampire at um, that point. Wow! <laughs> I'm just saying, it's it's out there. I haven't seen all of the game myself. Of course, it has 700 levels. I didn't even know what the level cap was. Sure. I gave up on it personally, because uh, it doesn't get any less cruel. No, it's it just... <laughs> and the, uh. the way that this has been described and the way that I've seen it played looks so punishing that... I, and I personally know a lot of people who have just gotten so frustrated with it that they've stopped playing. <laughs> and yet, the last time I checked, I believe this game had a 91 on game rankings. Just obscenely well-received. Well, I guess it's it's creative in that it's this tongue-in-cheek, you know, we're, we're crushing you and you'll like it. I mean, there is some precedent for people who like to be put at extreme risk by games. The best example I can think of is the PvP hardcore Diablo community. Ah. Yeah. Ladder runs, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, where, where they would, you know, you have a character that if it ever dies, it's gone, and you're going to play it PvP against other people where one of you is going to die any time you fight. Does the game have infrastructure to support that? Like... There, this, this is not yeah, there's like, like a hardcore PvP Diablo ladder on Battle.net. But I mean, like, when these two guys, it's not like, oh, okay, you beat me, I'll agree to go delete my character. No. Like, they do it. No, you just lose it, it's dead. It's Diablo gone. 2, you, you can create a character in hardcore mode, and when it's when you die, it's gone. You can't turn it off later, it's part of character creation. Right. Okay, see, it's I, a flag on the character. I saw that feature in Torchlight when I was checking out Torchlight, and I thought that was an innovation. Clearly that's not the case, so... No. Torchlight is running out of things that it has innovated on, but... Um. Yeah, I don't know why... There is just a community of people out there who dig this. I mean, the the, the earliest examples I can think of are BBS games, honestly. When I was a, a, a small... When I was a wee barn, and we used modems to connect to BBS servers, there were all these screwed up, you know, like Trade Wars-style mm-hmm. games where where it was actively encouraged that you predate on people and ruin their fun. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we we I think I, I used to host a BBS. I did not have trade wars, but I think we've uh, we've all had a similar experience. But I don't know that I've. I mean, Diablo is kind of a you have to go out of your way to play the game that way. That's that's kind of like a buried. It sounds like it's a buried feature. I mean, I never knew about it. That doesn't right. mean it's that's out true. Of the but theater. if anybody has ever played Diablo to like hell level or something, they know what a ridiculous concept it is to get to like level 85 with a hardcore character and then die. 
Oh, of course. I mean, but I don't. I don't imagine that many people do that. You know, how, how many millions of copies has Diablo sold? And I, most of the people I know who have ever played it, just play it single player. So. Well, sure, but this this game you're describing, I would never play this game. So it sounds like, you know, you might have to search through Diablo to find the hardcore feature, but I think you probably have to search through life in order to find Demon Souls. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is true, and I would I would really like to see the NPD numbers on it because I'd be surprised if it was selling that well. But it's being reviewed spectacularly well. Well, I, I don't know. I think there's a certain sadism that that or masochism or both that the game reviewers develop after a while uh, because they play games so often and, and they do it professionally. They bore of easy games. They get really good at games, and here is a game that comes along and repeatedly kicks you in the crotch and. Maybe that's refreshing to them. I don't know. I'm not a game reviewer. <laughs> yeah, but does anybody... I mean, you've both discussed it and obviously enjoy it and think it is kind of neat for what it is, but it doesn't sound like you played it that much. I I put in many hours. I don't feel like I got terribly far. Uh, and then I did, I did decide that there were less, you know, self-mutilative things that I could do with my time. Uh, but you know what? Five years ago, I don't think I would have made that decision necessarily. Yeah. I, I might still be playing it. I'm in a similar place. Yeah, I mean, if there... I, I've told many people this, that if if we weren't in the middle of holiday season and if there weren't <laughs> a ton of other awesome games coming out right now, I would have bought it, and I would probably be playing it right now because that's, you know, Joe and I... You, you and I have a similar background in that we used to play these type of games all the time. And we've gotten to the point in our lives now where we don't play them as much anymore. I think that's part of getting older. But Yeah, yeah there was really a time in our lives where we would look at the release schedule on, like, EB World and be distressed if there wasn't a game coming out in the next couple days we wanted to play. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we have a, a kind of a similar background, too. We used to play text-based player-kill MUDs in, uh, in the local college's computer lab. So we've got... We've got a background in at least the sadism part of it. Maybe there wasn't as much masochism in that case, but um, it's 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 impressive. So, I, are there are there seriously any other games that have come out recently that are that are this punishing that have gotten you know a mass release or at least not necessarily acclaimed, but at least you know been noticed? Well, I don't think that punishing. It sounds like that punishment is the whole idea behind that game. <laughs> but there certainly have been games that have been acclaimed as being very hard, like uh, Explosion Man. Uh, Which I have, and I didn't realize it had that reputation. I have heard it described. Now, I, I didn't, because of other parts of the description, I didn't really find myself drawn to it. But uh, I heard that it gets fairly brutally difficult at, uh, at advanced levels. Yeah, I guess that doesn't that I can picture that because it does have a difficulty curve early on. But the kind of difficulty that you would find in Explosion Man seems very different from the kind of difficulty you would find in Demon Souls, where somebody else can invade your game and murder you at any time. Well, right, but I but like I said, the whole point of that game seems to be punishing you. Um, I, I would say that that whether Explosion Man is hard or not, it probably isn't as hard as just the average game almost from back in the day games just used to be by default a lot harder yeah and now true. you really have to you have to seek out that difficulty you have to open up the options when you first boot a game and turn everything to the hardest settings and all that in order to get the kind of experience that for a lot of games used to just be default 
It's true, and I think one of the the games that came out, I think it was last year, uh, was I think it was Mega Man Nine, which was the yes. first you know true sequel to the Mega Man series in a while, and uh, it was nobody was having an easy time with it. People were dying multiple times within the first few seconds of loading levels, and it just would. I got the sense that a lot of people were frustrated by it, but still were coming back for more, like the like the abused spouse. Um, and that seems like kind of a, a smaller version of what's been happening here with Demon Souls. Like, you know, this game is right. punishing me. It's brutally punishing me, and I love it. I mean, well, okay, developers, I have a question about this, then. Um, if it is perfectly possible to seek out a very challenging experience in a game that allows you to tune its difficulty, do you feel that as developers... If you were going to make something hard, you'd want to design around a consistent level of challenge all the time, and that you could make a better experience if you just accepted, hey, this game is going to be hard. So, it's actually a pretty complicated question, and I'll tell you why. It gets down to one one of the first questions you ask when you set out to make a game, which is, who is your audience? And there's two basic schools of thought. Uh, the, the former is not the one I belong to, which says, uh, we're going to make this game around a concept, and then we're going to try to tweak it to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. Personally, I feel like that approach dilutes the appeal of the game, but that sort of thing would be the sort of thinking that would lead a developer to say, we've got this, we've got this action platformer, we also want to appeal to people who like really hard games, so we're going to put a very hard mode in. But often that's pretty thin. What that really means is we're going to just crank up the numeric difficulty, we're going to make you do things longer, it's going to be slower, uh, because true difficulty is really kind of baked into the experience. You can fake difficulty with math really easy. So this is the thing that people always got upset about with, like, the first Civilization games, where the computer would cheat, and that, even though people were seeking out challenge, that pissed them off because right. they wanted a more honest challenge. Uh, because they want an honest challenge, and honest challenge is really hard to create. It really is. It's really hard to create, uh, in, in part because, you know, especially today, information gets shared, uh, each individual game developer may be smarter than each individual player, but goddamn, are there more of them? <laughs> yeah, and that's it's it's um, sharing information is especially a problem when I don't want to go back to MMOs. But it's it's interesting to hear how people are designing raid bosses at this point when they right. have to take into account there's going to be a strategy out there even before the game actually launches or before the expansion pack launches because it's been in beta and all the clans have attacked it and it's right. it's difficult. People say that they want puzzles as quests in MMOs, and it's impossible to deliver a puzzle because for every person who actually goes through the effort of solving the puzzle themselves, many, many, many times more are going to go and find the answer and trivialize all the work that the designer put into making an interesting puzzle. So yeah, honestly, this reminds me of kill the 20 rats. They... Go ahead. No, that, that was pretty much the end. It's more efficient to create a quest that uses a mechanic that can't be circumvented by shared knowledge. Mm -hmm. So thanks a lot, players, for making my life a living hell. Well, but at the same time, theory crafting makes things interesting. Like, I can remember you and I looking up on BBS's moveless 
for like Capcom games in arcades when sure. we would go to arcades and play because it gave you a, a a deeper experience because you understood the underlying mechanics of the game you were trying to play more and that that gave you a, an experience with greater depth. That's true. Printing out move lists, I, I, I agree, that did enrich the experience. Sure. It's obviously gone, the needle has gone way too far in the other direction now, I think, of there being no mystery to pretty much anything anymore, short of the actual calculations that are used inside the code. Pretty much everything is exposed. And even those calculations can be kind of reverse-engineered, sort of, given enough time. Yeah. Well, um, as a player, I'll also say, it may be very hard to create a puzzle now, or even impossible, but I kind of like being insulated from your shitty puzzle. I mean, <laughs> sometimes people make bad puzzles. Oh, yes. And then we have to put up with them. And if we have something like Game Facts, where we can just go and say, I don't want to play this part of the game because I like everything else they've done, but this was not successful for me. It's nice to just be able to say, I don't have to deal with it. I personally believe that as soon as somebody has gone to to game facts to find a solution to your game that you have failed but that doesn't take into <laughs> account the the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have a game facts open while they're playing the game for the first time i'm just saying you're going to fail sometimes i mean especially if you're going to make a game that has i don't know a hundred puzzles in it if you really think you're going to get that right a hundred times uh, i i think you're not being realistic i that's true. i don't know i i did not open Game Facts once for Professor Layton, and there were some of those that I was stuck on for days. Uh, I think you can, in fact, embed alternate solving mechanisms. I, I like Professor Layton's uh, solution to that. You basically got, basically got to buy a series of progressively uh, more explicit hints. Progressive is uh, is defined strangely. Well, not not all that successfully. Usually, it's like. <laughs> it's a matchstick puzzle, and the first clue is like, "What is, is this a matchstick?" Yes. Uh, or the first yes. one is the solution is a number. I'm like, <laughs> "Well, you gave me a number field to fill in, so thanks." And yeah. then the third, the second one doesn't tell you anything more, and the third one tells you exactly what the answer is. But yes, hints can be difficult, but at the same time, you can put you can put ways to mitigate challenges. I've seen RPGs with puzzles in them. And if you fail enough times, you can talk to an NPC and he'll let you go yes, past. It's true. It's true. Wait, so, did you seriously just say, I didn't have to go to GameFAQs for a game, and that makes it awesome, and it gave me the answer anytime I, I wanted it. But it is opt-in. But it was opt-in. Was... Well, so it's GameFAQs. Yeah, I'm yeah. with him on this. So there are some people who, who love going to GameFAQs for stuff, just, just to cheat at games. People sure. who love to cheat at games. And there are people who go to Game Facts to get past the one part they can't beat, and still end up loving the game way more for it. Yeah, I sure. I had a I had an NES controller with the turbo pause button so that I could do crazy damage in Mega Man. I mean, I, I've done it. I think we've all we've all done it uh, in one in one part or another. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But as a developer, you've got to be seeking to minimize those points of frustration because one of the absolutely, reasons people but go, perfect is the enemy of good enough, right? Right. Well, I think th to go back to what your original question was, it felt like there were like we kind of addressed one thing of it. And the other one was, uh, I feel like correct me if I'm wrong that you were asking how hard do you really want to make a game? No, I was asking if you're out to make a game which can be really hard, 
is it going to be much better game if you just design it from the beginning thinking, I'm going to make this game really challenging, instead of trying to uh, permit the increase of difficulty if a player wants to opt into that. Well, let me get to the to the second answer, the second philosophy that I actually believe in, which is that uh, if you're going to make a game for an audience, you should unapologetically make that game for that audience, and you get a you get a certain bleed effect into a larger audience from that core if you do a really good job, and I think that that's the like. Uh, if you look at something like Mega Man 9, there were a lot of people that checked out Mega Man 9 who appreciated what it did, even if they weren't exactly the target audience for a really you know, hardcore throwback platformer, because they heard that it was good. They heard that so it, a good job was done with it. So I, I tell my friends I like XCOM, even though my dudes can die at the drop of a hat, that they will give it a shot and find out that they do, in fact, like that thing. Well... Even if they'll they'll give it a try, some of them will find that they like it even if, if they didn't think they would in the first place. If it's a well constructed game and you're excited about it because it's well constructed, I'm sure that you as a as a longtime gamer have convinced people to buy games that they otherwise would not have based on its quality and its personal appeal to you, even if that person was not necessarily in the exact center of the target audience. I think that that's definitely true. Uh, it's interesting that my first impression is that usually when I did that, their response was, you're an idiot, that game sucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they didn't like XCOM, then you stopped being their friend. Yeah, well, I mean, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's true. But I, I can't say that I was actually one of the people who proselytized about XCOM. You know, it, it was pretty... That was done pretty universally. I'm, I'm trying to think of any game that I've ever recommended, which was extremely niche that other people got into. I think my tastes are just so extremely different that unless I'm talking to people who already know they like that kind of game, it's real unlikely that I'm talking to anybody who could come to like that game. Well, that's just niches, communities, friends in general, right? Right. Right. Your friends have self-selected at this point. <laughs> right, and that's, you know, that's a modern reality. I mean, we don't really group by geographical proximity anymore. We, we group by common interest because it's so easy to do so. I haven't even seen one of my next-door neighbors, and I've lived in that house for two years. I don't really believe they exist. <laughs> well, do you know them? No, I... I've never seen them. Even weirder, weirder. What if you you did know them and you interacted with them in a number of different you know like digital mediums and you never met each other, didn't That's even true. know it was your neighbor. That's and sweet. after we got to talking, it would be a long time before we would even know that we knew each other. That's <laughs> well, the weirdest there's, part. There's something that that actually I can point to a video game that totally has that happen all the time because there is a there is a very obvious and significant cross section of people who play paper collectible card games mm -hmm. at like tournaments and stuff and then get most of their practice on something like magic online so it very frequently happens that somebody will you know play against people online and not realize that they're the same people that they play against in person it's probably as i mean i i'm sure that that phenomenon exists with 
Call of Duty 4 and with, you know, uh, poke, poke, uh, like online poker games and stuff like that. But I thought you were about to say Pokemon. I said, yeah, that too. That too. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Um, yeah, if you guys are going to talk about Magic Online, I'll go make a sandwich or something. No, no, I just wanted to point out that, you know, are we you were making talking sandwiches about... for all of us because this <laughs> might not be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I just wanted to point out that, you know, it, it's a situation where a digital media is, is emulating something that people do in real life and and not creating the same social exper- experience for them. Yeah. Well. I've got people that I know only on the Internet. I've never met in real life, and I'm a lot closer with them than some people that I uh, have to suffer through. Well, that's, I mean, that's... I'm glad that that kind of thing can exist at this point, you know, because that's how Joe and I originally met. We met on a mud and didn't actually see each other face-to-face for months after that. And, you know, now he's a groomsman in my wedding. So these things, it can happen to you is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's possible. I worked indirectly with a guy who uh, left his girlfriend to marry someone that he met through an MMO. Um, that... If you're saying that because you think it's uncommon, I don't think that's no. The case. I'm I'm saying that to illustrate that there it's it's actually a trend. It's not an isolated thing, and it goes even farther than hey, we're friends now. Well, yeah, the, there's a Joe and I have a, a similar situation that maybe also we'll get into. <laughs> I was just going to drop it. I was going to say we'll get into it some other time, but uh, uh, Joe, uh, not in Maine, you won't. <laughs> Well, you could be referring to so many things here. I could be. I, um, yeah. Let's just let's just let's just move on. I don't think it's really connected to, to have. Um, so it's uh, it's eight o'clock. We've been talking for about an hour and a half, and time flies. Does it fly? And we haven't even touched on Monster Hunter That's yet. That's true. We Oof. haven't gotten to Monster Hunter. I was promised Monster Hunter talking. <laughs> I was a beast. Did you bring your PSP? <laughs> I I didn't know. <laughs> Well, well, I, I mean, I don't know, know uh, this game, so so we should at least get that done. What did you say? I also don't know about this game, so we should at least get that done. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Monster Hunter exists. I mean, what what is there to really say about it? It's like you know, the reason I bring it up, dear listener, is because I had an agenda and. and I brought Nick and Mike together because, as you have heard in these in this last hour and a half, they're they're fans of the niche and fans of the hardcore, and so I kind of was trying to make a list of things that we could talk about that featured these features, so to speak. And uh, Demon Souls was one of them, Dwarf Fortress was the other, but wedged in between was Monster Hunter. I have never actually played it. Uh, I know Joe hasn't as well, but that doesn't mean we we can't talk about it here. <laughs> I, we don't really need to talk about it. I'm just glad I know someone who, else who plays in the area because well, now. Well, okay, hey, do you what find is a scarcity it? Jesus. Of monster players here? I do. I really. So it's it's we weird. We're bringing one to the fold. There are about a dozen of us that meet in Redmond. There's a fold. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we can get you uh, set up uh, to play Monster Hunter Frontier on on the internet. We have a guy who's uh, 44 now, right? 44. I don't Wait, know. Frontier? Don't you need to like fake a Japanese social security number or something to get? That's what the fold is for. <laughs> <laughs> the fold has been defined. Right, no. Yeah. Wow. Uh, All right. I've got a guy that puts in eight hours at work, runs home, puts in 12 hours on the Monster Hunter, right. and will come back to work after three hours. I want to be part of the fold. <laughs> uh, no. So, uh, Monster, 
I don't want to make Nick describe what every single game is. So, Mike, <laughs> would you like to describe what Monster Hunter is? I found myself at a loss in comparison to his ability to describe games, mostly because I only um, evaluate them and uh, have little to do with talking them up. Give it anyway. a shot. I'll tell you when you're wrong. <laughs> Give it a shot. Welcome to my world, Mike. <laughs> good, good. But... Uh, <laughs> Monster Hunter, to me, when I got into it, was that esoteric niche, uh, community-based, and unforgivingly difficult game. And I realized, that in, the, in the greater game sphere, it's not all of these things, but it is a lot of them all at once. It is a fantastically well-made game, and that, in, its, in all fairness, it is the same game that was made in 2004, right? Yes. On the PS2, and they've continued to modify this game uh, to its current state. It's... <laughs> The title is simple, and the gameplay concept is simple. You fight monsters. You, you, well, you hunt monsters, I should say. Lately, it's been more of a case of monster murderer than monster hunter, as uh, a lot of the ecology and those elements, they tried to put it back in 3, but they've dropped almost completely out of the modern gameplay of monster hunter. So it's, it's less hunter and more boss fights and farming, it, alternately and uh, forever. <laughs> It feels like, I mean, and Nick, you can step in at any time here because I've seen it. I've never played mm. it. It feels like kind of a, it's a, well, first of all, it's a third-person kind of over-the-shoulder perspective. Um, you're fighting guys and collecting loot and using the spoils of monsters that you defeat to make even better loot. And right. you've told me tales of and, the equipment that you've made. And that's that's really the, the appeal. I mean, you... The game is set up... A, to be difficult. It is definitely a challenging, challenging game. And uh, you can mitigate that in one of two ways. You can kind of grind your way through it, uh, or you can socialize your way through it. Things get so much easier when you have a party of four, uh, because it, it's not... It's basically the same challenge, the, the same difficulty for... The, the, the monster doesn't get any harder when you add four people to, to smack it to death. It's true. That's well, okay, so but far, I'm... it sounds like old, over-the-shoulder Diablo. Uh, there's, there's something to that, except uh, it is also a very locative game. I mean, the, the position and timing and... Uh, and hitboxes and damage types and, and hit locations are all very, very precise. Uh, the timing is very unforgiving. You're fighting monsters, for the most part, that are you know anywhere between three and 300 times larger than you are. And right. Even at the highest level of play, the basic concept remains that you cannot stand toe-to-toe. You don't right. walk up to them and hit them and win at any point. Right. Uh you you need to exploit the holes in their in their attack patterns. You need to take advantage of their different elemental weaknesses and speed weaknesses and you know predictability of some attack patterns to take on something that in a lot of cases, especially once you get into like G rank stuff, can one hit you. Like uh, unforgiving. You, yeah. Yeah, unforgiving. just very un- unforgiving. Yeah. So, so it sounds like a very deep version of the sort of gameplay that we used to get out of games like, I don't know, Contra and, and uh, R-Type and I, stuff like that. I love Contra, and one of the, the key similarities between Contra and Monster Hunter is, mm-hmm. I, I think, I, I'm sure there's a plot somewhere, but I believe the entirety of the plot is contained within the title. Yes. <laughs> and that's one of the great pleasures of Monster Hunter. I, I like to, to play it up, actually, and tell people about the story of Monster Hunter. It seems that your character has a vendetta against nature. God, have you ever ran the background story to Contra? It is some crazy acid-inspired stuff. Well, it sounds like, I mean, just hearing you describe it briefly, it sounds like the reason why 
I mean, there are many reasons why it's fun. Collecting loot, upgrading your loot based on loot that you loot sounds like fun. But there's also, mm -hmm. it feels like it's a thousand boss battles. It is. And like every fight is like either a really easy, really small, really quick boss battle or a fucking huge multi-stage, or not yep. multi-stage, but multi-minute boss battle. No, some of them... I some of them are, in fact, multi-stage. You fight some of these Elder Dragons, and it can take you two or three times to stack enough damage to kill it. You actually have to fight it over a period of multiple missions. Uh, there are some uh, fights that... These, these are 50-minute boss fights, in some cases. 15? 50. 50. 50. That's as many as five tens, <laughs> and that's awesome! <laughs> oh, yeah, and what time runs on you, a lot more like WoW rating. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, so yeah, wow rating. That sounds uh, like a... Well, another one of the the big things about it for me is it's not just individual boss fights, but these are sort of Mega Man-style interconnected boss fights. Yes. And it's more... Everything you make is made out of monster parts and has the attributes of that monster, including sort of its base strength. And you, you, there's a ladder to climb and, you know, like a like a base attack and defense value that you climb. But the elemental values, the status values, and the extra perks of what all your weapons and armor allow you to do interact with other bosses in, in a particular sort of spiraling way where that's the, if you didn't have the, the skill or the party members to simply charge your way up the ladder, you can artfully beat the bosses in a certain yes. order. And, and uh, the, it, it also presents... also sounds like WoW rating because there's a lot of, you know, prerequisite equipment and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, there are also many different types of weaponry that play very, very different. It's not just big right. sword, little sword, fast sword, slow sword... Uh, the sort of the quirks and differences between a greatsword and a lance, you have to play the game completely differently and approach the same monster completely differently. Uh, and and that, that is really appealing to me, especially because of the, the fact that, you know, after you learn a monster's attack pattern and really get it down, you will easily destroy something that just a day or two ago was savagely kicking your ass. Uh, and that that level of satisfaction is really kind of what drove me to keep playing. And I, I think that learning curves really appeal to old school gamers, so so I can see where that's appealing to you. I think it's more than a learning curve with Monster Hunter. And you said there were two ways to get good at Monster Hunter: to get great right. stats or to get a great party. And I like to think there's a third way. I try not to say this, especially in front of game developers. Oh boy! But you could also be the man. Well, and personal skill has a lot to do with yes. it. Monster Hunter, especially because of the way that the animations, invincibility, and the hit locations of everything work, you can use skill to overcome a lack of party and poor yes. equipment up to a certain degree. And there are uh, people doing super plays, posting videos on YouTube of naked runs, uh, doing it without or without equipment, Amazing just a weapon, stuff. and uh, you know, exploiting a lot of stuff actually. But uh, skill plays, I think, a lot. A large factor in the Monster Hunter experience, along with the lore. Like, yeah. there's a lot of stuff in Monster Hunter that's simply undocumented, and a lot of it has to be told either between players or through experimentation. And right. it follows its own in inner logic uh, very well, but things combining random things using the ecology. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it's been downplayed lately, but you used to be able to climb an ivy, uh, like a ivy covered hill get to the top, gather some ivy, walk over to a, a giant spiderweb, gather some spiderweb, and make that into a net. And then use that net in a trap, find some barrels, put some exploding mushrooms and fire herbs in there, which you have to combine in the, you know, on your own, right. and to make gunpowder, and put that bomb next to that trap, and then you'd have to slaughter some herbivores, grab some meat, 
put some poisonous mushrooms in the meat and you suddenly have a meat on a trap next to a bomb <laughs> and no, they don't tell you these things. This is not in the manual right. and the, the methodology for trapping and engaging monsters is I, I like to think it's sort of uh, word of mouth. What you just wow. described sound like, sounds like the first 1% of Dwarf Fortress. It's like a little bit. Like, yeah. <laughs> level of complexity that you just uh, had to go through. It's just like, right. a dwarf does that right. on his way to work. Honestly, it really sounds <laughs> like somebody like took yeah. what yeah. appeals to people about WoW rating mm. and said, hey, let's turn up the amount of theory crafting you can do, and let's right. turn up the amount of skill that you can apply to to the fights. And, and, and these are good things. These these are fantastic things. The fact that there are these learning moments that just turn the entire experience around. The first time you figure out the timing to land a level three greatsword charge on a Tigrex, that that moment of like I can stun lock this thing forever. This yeah. has been running it's, over my face. It's a personal skill that's important. And it's it's personal skill, right? And, yeah, I'm losing my own thoughts thinking of all the things that are great about Monster Hunter. <laughs> Do you guys so have I know. Here's the thing I forgot about it. We forgot right. to mention that, not aside from its practical uh, qualities and you know the, the how well built it is, it's an experience. It is epic. Yeah. When you play Monster Hunter, and they play the the theme of Monster Hunter as Lao Shan Long walks into Area Five yes. in the Fortress, or when you block a Rathalos Fireball and you go skidding backwards, it's just a level four block stun, but it looks great. Everything is huge and the feeling of accomplishment you get based on the presentation alone is uh, is, is not something that you can just ignore. It's Where definitely you black, blocking a Rathalos fireball. Um, <laughs> God, great, I mean, come know, on, right? Great swords uh, out, you know. Sure, you're trying, I guess. You're trying to roll through it. Roll. You know <laughs> you're not using a V plus two armor. All right, never mind. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, isn't the the general uh, perspective of Monster Hunter kind of similar. I mean, obviously, Demon Souls is a lot slower, but it feels right. like the same kind of thing. In that each encounter, however brief, feels like a kind of a you'd better do this right, or you're not going to advance well, yeah, any further. And both of these experiences and a lot of the things we've talked about tonight really feel like they would be very inaccessible to the average, say, WoW player, and that mm. person would would really not want to. You know, it would not be. I don't know, satisfied by the the stuff as much as they would be frustrated by the barriers. I, I've tried to bring people into Monster Hunter and failed. Uh, right. I think there's a gray area. There's a curve. Like, Demon Souls is way on the top of it, for example. Right. Where you try to bring a player in, and they may or may not make it. I think Monster Hunter is well below Demon Souls on the curve. Yes. But you can still fall off of this mountain before you well, start to climb. Well, there's, there's one specific crack, and I've, I've seen this happen so many times. People will branch at one specific point. Uh, everyone, when they fight their first kutku, gets killed. Yeah. Everyone. And there are some people who will try and try and try until they prevail, and those people never stop playing Monster Hunter for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and there are other people who will give up. And I kind of feel bad for those people. That said, it is a barrier to entry, and the rest of the game will demand more from them. And oh, yes. This sort of Darwinism is probably in their better interests. As probably. Person. Yeah, right. Yeah. They could end up having a lot of bad experience with it if they continue. They don't deserve to be in the fall. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Grant, I mean, once again, I find myself wondering how to deal with the fact that we have discussed at least 
10 things tonight that could be talked about for hours. And we all seem to kind of want to do that, but we're trying to return to the agenda. And the agenda is like, what, two items down? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said in episode zero and maybe in episode one as well, we don't, this is always just supposed to be a jumping off point. And I, I, I feel like we don't want to talk. It's not necessarily in our best interest to talk about Monster Hunter for, for an hour, because I get the feeling that there are 10 Monster Hunter podcasts that probably do that already. And you'd have and, trouble picking a name among them, right? That's true. Yeah. That's true. And uh, I feel like the merit of what we're doing here is giving a perspective of both developers and gamers. Um, right. But I think that the larger issue wasn't Monster Hunter. It was how much of a role should learning curve and skill and difficulty play in the development of games? Do people want that? How much of a niche does exist for those kind of games? What's the most effective way to make a game like that? And and that's a topic that has a lot more mileage than, you know, how do I beat an Umbugu in Monster Hunter? <laughs> a what? I'm not familiar with that one. <laughs> Umbugu, clearly. It's yeah. one of those off-breeds must, must be. But must I, think, be. I think we can all agree, then, that despite, sort of, like, in spite of any sort of development or thought you can put into, the, uh, into a game, there are going to be some people who will have fun regardless. And the, either the way you intended, the way you didn't intend it, right. maybe they just enjoy playing with the uh, the ball in the cup, you know, the, the, the ball in the string. And so I'd rather do this for six hours, and I had a blast while I was doing it, and I, I hated that Monster Hunter game. Right. One one of the things that is becoming increasingly clear is that you know big budget games are so hit and miss. They you you can put thirty million dollars into a game and not be guaranteed of any particular return, and you know, that's what happens when you try to be the next X. And I, I'm not even going to speculate as to... There, there's an X in every category. Right. Uh, do you want to be the next WoW? Do you want to go head-to-head with WoW? No, you really don't. It's not a good bet for you anymore. You'll spend as much money as WoW did, and chances are, if in, in a win condition, in a good scenario, you will have one tiny fraction of the total population because it's just not something you want to go head-to-head with. Are well, right. there... I, I heard somebody say to the developer, or some developer involved with uh, Warhammer Online, what is it like to have a game that currently has like half a million people playing it and is considered a failure? So I, I won't give you what I, I know to be the numbers of uh, Lord of the Rings Online, but it's not a entirely dissimilar comparison. Uh, we... We targeted WoW in a lot of ways. We targeted WoW players. We made an interface that was going to be accessible to WoW players, game mechanics that were going to be adoptable by WoW players. We absolutely knew it. And, you know, Lord of the Rings, in MMO standards, is successful. It's got, it it is well above the threshold at which it's, you know, turning the money crank and making a lot of people happy. It's a good game. But if you expected uh, a game like anything, uh, be it Aeon or, or Lord of the Rings or Warhammer Online or Champions to you know, post numbers in the millions of subscribers, the odds of that happening are so vanishingly small that in a lot of ways you're better going after a niche. Well, it also kind of sounded like you were saying, maybe not go after a niche, but spend a lot less money than that big competitor that you're after and then hope that the fraction of their business that you managed to, to get covers the amount of money that you did end up sending. 
Right. I mean, Asheron's Call is still live ten years later. There are still subscribers. Uh, that game has, if you look at it just from a dollar spent, dollars received, it incredibly successful. It never topped, uh, I won't say what, where its population actually topped, but not a terribly huge number in the grand scheme of things, definitely not in the millions. Uh, it never topped that, but if you look at it in terms of was it a successful game, was it financially successful, you bet it was, because these MMOs can live for a very long time. It's this long-tail theory of, of uh, monetization that if you make a small number of people very happy for a very long time, that's just as good as making a larger group of people happy for a shorter period of time. So it's not so much like a niche, like implying that it's really small, but just to bring it down a little bit and have fun along the way, right? I don't know. <laughs> sure. Oversimplifying it, right? Well, and I remember, I think it was NCSoft, um, at one point, uh, I saw something from an executive of that company saying, hey, we're just going to make a ton of MMOs because mm -hmm. we've learned that people churn through MMOs real quick. So we're actually hoping to pick up our own subscribers on the rebound at this point. Yeah, well, shotgun method, right? Well, one one of the things that NCSoft has going for it that I absolutely love, I love the NCSoft launcher because as you launch up whatever NCSoft game you're you're currently playing, you get bombarded with information and updates on five other ones. I mean, it's the same same as Zynga. You play any Zynga game for any any period of time on Facebook, and they've got that bar. That bar is so powerful. It if you're done playing this game that maybe you didn't like very much, here's ten other games that you're already just one click away from, and you circulate these people within your own products. It's brilliant. Right, and here's where the player perspective gets to say that, that stuff can also be really freaking annoying. <laughs> if it's, if it's well, silence. It could be annoying, but it works, right? <laughs> we, we all sit through commercials. You know, we've yeah, been well, I'm just saying, like, I haven't seen a commercial in years. I'm sorry. <laughs> My well, friends are constantly spamming me with stupid Facebook app crap that I want a part of. Yeah, well, we could we could go for another two hours on Facebook itself. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, just throw it out there. We all we all see banner ads. I mean, you could be elite and okay. not, not no, no, get around those too. Fair but, enough. Yeah, we accept you, advertising as part of our life. We can see accept, banner ads. Yeah. Yeah. Game advertising? Why not? Sure. It's better better than extends, right? <laughs> I'd rather hear about more oh, games. Much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, there's other stuff on the uh, on the agenda in air quotes that we could talk about. Um, I don't feel like it's necessarily productive to start a big discussion about fighting games. The next time we have you two on, we could talk about fighting games. <laughs> um, so let's return for a minute to to one of the things that was at the top of this. Um, I don't know how many games you guys have played this year. Joe, I, I have a feeling how many games you've played this year. Um, let's start with Mike and ask, what do you think is the best game of the year so far? That's rough. It is. You know, we can come back to you. <laughs> uh, I do play a lot of games. Mm -hmm. uh, very diverse games. Not all entirely um, in our language. Or for any system that uh, even really exists, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, I, I shouldn't say stuff like that. Like potentially incriminating stuff on a podcast, right? The views of you do not represent the views of your employer, exactly. and also you can't get arrested for anything you say on a podcast. It's true, fact. Really? I don't think that's true. <laughs> Damn it! You can admit, <laughs> <all>. <laughs> you can admit to all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was just, 
No, we can talk about it later. When <laughs> board out. Yeah, well, okay, well, you can think about it if you like. You well, don't have to have an answer. I was well, just give, curious. Give, give me a second. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll definitely throw out at least two or three. Okay, good. <laughs> when did this year start? <laughs> January. In, uh, no, we're, we're in the release schedule. I don't think about years. <laughs> uh, the, one of the... I mean, the year kind of started with Capcom uh, coming out with Street Fighter 4 and Resident Evil 5. Um, those were, I think, in February and March, so I don't remember what came out before that. But from what I've seen, that's generally kind of the beginning of the, of the AAA titles of the year. And your game of the year certainly doesn't have to be a AAA title, but that's it's just for like, a frame of reference. Not. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what that's going to be. See, now this is just uh, listening to, to several seconds of silence on a podcast. So in the interest of, uh, of keeping, it, keeping it going, while you're thinking about it, I'll say uh, mine, uh, I think number three is probably Resident Evil 5. Uh, Resident Evil 5. Uh, number two is Batman Arkham Asylum. And number two is Uncharted 2 for me, I think. I you hope- said number two twice. Number one is Uncharted 2. Is that you said I number asked? two is Uncharted 2. Number one is also Uncharted 2. It's wow. both number one and number two. No, number two is Arkham <laughs> Asylum. Number one is Uncharted 2 because I'll briefly uh, evangelize Uncharted 2. The gameplay was awesome. Uh, writing was some of the best I've ever seen. The performances were some of the best I've ever seen. If you have a PlayStation 3, you need to buy it. If you don't have a PlayStation 3, you should buy one and then buy it. It's an incredible achievement. That is my game of the year. Mike? Nick, Uh, I'm going to have to go with Monster Hunter Freedom Unite in the U.S. Damn right I am. When did that come out? It was this year. This year? It was this year. It's got to be top three for me too. Uh, In all fairness, I was trying to remember everything. It. uh, I gave up on remembering. I. I. I, I, In terms of number of hours I've played, uh, in terms of amount of enjoyment I've siphoned from a piece of software, uh, far and away at the top. Okay. Then we'll shoot straight from whatever I'm thinking off the top of my head. I'll put Monster Hunter up there too. Let's say number one because I did play it a lot. Hmm. I think I've got some uh, almost uh, 900 hours logged into this character. Uh, it loaded what? from the previous one. Oh. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, the, this character total across all it came from Monster Hunter. I didn't know. Two, yeah. So. Okay. You no, it okay. could be. Yeah. No. Some... I restarted, so I don't know what my combined time is. Oh, are we counting alts too? Uh, never mind. Uh, up there, I'll put uh, Toho Hisoten Soku. It's not in English. Uh, it's a fighting game based on a shooting game uh, that only has female characters. Could you send me a link to that and I'll put it on the website? It has net play. It built okay. in. It, it's great. I don't, mean to, I, I don't mean that I'm going to play it because I'll probably never play it. I'm saying if you want to, I can put it on the recap post for this, oh, this yeah, podcast. Oh yeah, great. No, I got all sorts of cool things for you then. Okay. <laughs> Alright. Well, so we have two votes for Monster Hunter. <laughs> Straight. I don't know how that happened. But clearly I matched the right people together. Uh, one vote for Uncharted 2. Actually, it sounded like two votes for Uncharted 2 because my first and second, no. so that counts. You get two votes, right? <laughs> Joe, do you have one? Oh. <laughs> Joe's not. Joe has his left. Are you, Joe, are you still there? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't think I count. Um, you were, Did you even hear any of what we were just talking about? Yes, I did. Uh, I was... 
I try to spare you the, the sound of my nose expelling air into my microphone as often as possible. No, I've received a lot of emails. People really like that, so don't edit yourself. Yeah. <laughs> There, there's a um, niche porn community for exactly that. Sure, sure, exactly. Um, oh, yeah, I don't think I count. I don't play the release schedule, really. You know, I get on Steam and go, geez, what games from 15 years ago did they just suddenly put on Steam? And, <laughs> you know, I play... Like, I think by the time I discovered Mountain Blade, it probably been out for two years. Sure. And, you know, um, I... Uh, I play MMOs and I play Magic Online and, you know, randomly I become attracted to games like NBA 2K10, but I would never dare say that it's close to the best game released this year. It's just something that happens to appeal to me. So um, we could look at this another way. Based on what you've heard of all the games that have come out this year, what is what is your favorite game of the year that you've heard? <laughs> well, of course, you know, I never... I just hear nothing but awesome things about Uncharted, and that's funny because I will never play it, and it's not even interesting to me. Well, I mean, I don't want to know how far we want to go down the hypothetical, but assuming for a moment that you had a PlayStation 3, would you still not be interested in it? Right, right. I mean, it just, oh. you know, there are, there are actually commercials on real television, you know, that show the game, and I'm just like, okay, it's a... It's a dude who shoots things, and I don't really play those games. <laughs> True. It's. I mean, at the end of the day, you're it right. It is a dude that shoots things. It is. It is. I believe you know, that's the The subtitle. last time I really played a game that, that seemed that generic was, I don't know, years and years and years ago. Was that the original dude who shoots things? <laughs> well, like, like the, the very first thing. thing that comes to my mind when I think, you know, okay, uh, you know, the... The commercials just show somebody running around and using, you know, modern military hardware to do damage to people. And I go, uh, I don't know, Tomb Raider. You know, I, I have no idea what this game is like, and and whether it's third third person or first person or quick time events or whatever, I, I don't see. Nothing has been said about it that is compelling to me. Well, what's interesting it, I, is that initially when it was first released, it was kind of or even first announced, I think it was kind of derisively referred to as Dude Raider, um, because <laughs> it was just, I mean, it has a lot of the features of Tomb Raider, climbing around, gunplay, stuff like that, exploring weird locations, but it has Nathan Drake instead of Lara Croft. So, I think it's kind of evolved from that, but yeah, originally that was not necessarily an inaccurate comparison. Yeah, and I, I didn't keep playing Tomb Raider games after the first one, it's just not my thing. <laughs> yeah. We, we would get tired of games for so many other reasons besides sucking that uh, mm. you can put a lot of spit and polish and do a good job on uh, a lame concept and in a world full of things that haven't been shot yet, are you a bad enough dude to shoot them all? And we're like, <laughs> we'll play for the same amount of time as something that, oh, it sounds cool, but ends up, end up not being mm. that great. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so, I mean, I just, shooter gameplay is not really something I'm looking for, and... You know, a lot of the praise that the game gets is for the characters and the integration of its story into the actual gameplay and, like, the way that the story is reeled out and how high quality it is. And I'm very much one of those people who doesn't play games for stories. You know, I, I play games for gameplay. And, you know, when I play RPGs, I prefer to, I don't know, frame it 
in my own story. You know, I like sandbox games. So I'd rather watch a movie than watch a story, than watch a game that is primarily acclaimed for having a great story. If you'd like to hear more about this, listen to episode zero of the Two vs. Two podcast, where well, you know, three yeah, people yeah. attacked me for having, yeah. For liking Metal Gear or something? No, for, <laughs> no, they were, uh, we had a discussion that was similar to this, in that Joe and Matt and Dave preferred the kind of games where you could make your own guy and you define the story, and I'm much more of a traditional console RPG guy where you're kind of watching the story happen and occasionally pressing buttons. Well, I like to think that there have been some very talented and wonderful game developers who have poured their heart and soul and made this their life work and really want to show me something. I'll, I figure I'll sit down. I'll sign up and watch it. Yeah, it. Joe Guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's got to pee on his life's work like that. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's like any other hobby. You have to, you have to select your activities based on the things that appeal to you most. And like with your description of Monster Hunter was more compelling to me than Grant's description of Uncharted. And we didn't I, would, feel all I probably too. won't ever play either one. And I'm sure some very talented people poured their heart and soul into them. But, you know, I don't care. Yeah, but the people at Naughty Dog are better. <laughs> no, that's not true. Um... So yeah, that's that's Joe voted for Uncharted. I heard him. Um, <laughs> that's that's three to two. So I win. Um, yeah, I mean, you may as well for my vote just go to like the most popular game rankings website and pick the game with the highest score. I think it, that might that's be Uncharted. Demon Souls. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> wow, we got the Metacritic. Well, if you do that, that is actually Uncharted two for this year, which okay. is interesting. Yeah, so go to Metacritic and figure out what the highest score is, and you know that is my perception of what game is good. I'll actually do that right now. We'll go to uh, to Metacritic. We'll go there right now. This part of the podcast brought to you by Google Chrome. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're. Uh, while I'm while we're doing this, I will uh, I will begin to wind down because we've been going at this for over two hours now. Um, Nobody's made me a sandwich, so <laughs> we'll have to look for. Oh God, how do you look for the like the best score of the year on Metacritic? There's I this, never use Metacritic. There's a button. Well, you that says probably best wait up. until the year yeah, is over. Oh, oh, gotcha. Okay, I'll 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 uh, do advanced search. Sure. Um, while I'm doing that, this has been episode two of the Two Versus Two podcast. Um, I'd like to significantly thank uh, Nick Davidson and Mike Lee for joining us. You guys have been awesome. True, true. <laughs> and spurts. Yeah, and spurts, you've been awesome. For the most part, kind of hit or miss. But I'll and clearly the biggest thing they got out of this was another person to play Monster Hunter with. Yeah. Well, the I've thing is, I mean, oh. Nick's going to be joining the fold. I'll have a fold update every week. I'll, I'll have, we'll have the fold segment of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, look, look for slash fold on the website. <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, you get, I mean, we can get a whole bunch of monster hunters together. I'm sure there are people who play it uh, everywhere. No, I have no. I know a lot of people who do. I, I never would have connected them with Nick because I don't. Yeah, we'll be doing a live fold chat. <laughs> yeah, foldcast will be coming out soon. I'll be launching that. Um, Metacritic, I think people would actually listen to that. Yeah, I probably. Metacritic totally <laughs> sucks, and uh, thank you for that compliment, Nick. I appreciate that. Metacritic totally sucks, and I don't see if you can edit say. it out. <laughs> I don't see any way to uh, to actually view the best game of the year. So I'm going to good old game rankings, 
we're going to click oh, in 2009, 2009 uh, best to worst and search. And the answer is, what is the answer, Nick? Uncharted uh, <laughs> 2 Among Thieves <laughs> by nearly so 2%. So now I'm curious, what is 2 and 3? Uh, 2 doesn't count because it's a little big planet game of the year, which came out last year. Um, okay. Second is kind of shocking to me, and that's Street Fighter 4. I'm not shocked. shocking. What's wrong with that game, you asshole? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I played it more than you do, you. And I'm better than you. So, sh- shut up. I don't know. We should play some fighting games here sometime. Yeah. yeah. Well, fighting games will be next time. Nick won't be able to join us because he's he doesn't play those games. Uh, not now. Number three, Grand Theft Auto. This is a kind of this could be an interesting thing at the end of the two hour and ten minute podcast for people. Uh, number three so far is uh, Grand Theft Auto Chinatown Wars. I will see. I, I I had an extensive conversation with somebody about how much they hate GTA Four, like like the other day, and that's my only exposure to that game. Really, is the, I want to have him on him or her at one point because we I want to talk about how. Disappointed I was in Grand Theft Auto 4. Well, it, it's Kevin. Um, oh, well, no, forget that. <laughs> Kevin's interesting because he's a very casual gamer, as in he has an Xbox and it broke and he just never fixed it, you know? Um, and he, like, took a day off from work to play GTA 4 because he liked 3 so much mm-hmm. and then is deeply bitter about about that game in general. Well, okay, we'll have... I, then he's going to be a guest soon, and we're going to talk about that. <laughs> um, until then, uh, I could keep reading off the list, but that that doesn't really serve any, anybody well. Uh, number well, four is, you all did three, so that's the world's top three. Yeah. I mean, Street Fighter Four is on there twice for two different platforms. Uh, four is Batman Arkham Asylum. Five is Forza Motorsport 3, which is kind of surprising. Um, so that's the top five of the year. Uh, number one, the world agrees, including everybody in this room, that Uncharted 2 is the greatest game. You don't even have your cat on board. <laughs> he was saying earlier, Uncharted 2. Uncharted 2. Uncharted 2. I had the decoder ring. Okay. Okay, so uh, anyway, this is uh, Grant uh, for Joe Caruso. Say goodbye, Joe. Goodbye. Uh, this is episode 2 of the 2 vs. 2 podcast. Let me try that again. This is <laughs> episode 2 of the 2 vs. 2 podcast. Grant Roberts signing off. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you next week, hopefully. And that's it. Cue the chiptune music playing. I I hit stop on my record. When? (laughs) (laughs) Stop. Stop five minutes in.